As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Rory Christie, dairy farmer from Wigtonshire, southwest Scotland, shouting in his cows on a cold, wet and very blustery day. The latest on-farm edition is an in-depth chat between myself, Anna Davis and Rory, after I took a trip down to his farm a couple of weeks ago. Open the gate! Rory is a very interesting man in a number of ways. I've known him for quite some time. He's a board member of both the Milk Suppliers Association and the farming cooperative organisation SAOS. But more than that, he thinks deeply about things and isn't afraid to stand out from the crowd with possibly unpopular or controversial opinions. I think and certainly hope that most farmers listening will find food for thought in what he's about to say. Coming up, if you've ever fretted about farmers being price takers rather than price makers, Rory is a big advocate of learning how to properly negotiate, to stand up to big corporates or even landlords, or anywhere in fact where farmers suffer from an imbalance of power. Yeah, yeah there's something I need to do. I need to do this because I've got to negotiate with this big company, this global giant. Mm-hmm. And I've got to get better at what I do. I've got to be as good as the guy at the other side of the table. Yes, yeah. Like more and more of us, Rory is searching for solutions to prevent global climate change and particularly the positive role that farming can play in that. The loss of biodiversity, the greenhouse gas thing. I really think farmers can become the heroes, mm-hmm. not the villains of it. Yes, I agree. But people need to listen to us. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately, while we keep cheap food as a driver of our economy, we won't save the planet. And soberingly, he warns that farmers need to start to prepare right now for a future with fewer subsidies. They'll look at all sorts of things around the environment, but it'll be a tiny top-up. Yeah. And it won't provide enough for your family. Before we crack on, just a quick thank you to people who share the love about On Farm on Twitter, Instagram and elsewhere. First of all, a thank you to Dr Laura Wyness, who was very enthusiastic about our organic oil seed rape episode a couple of weeks ago. What a fab podcast to listen to is what she said on Twitter, so thank you Laura. There are too many people to thank individually, but we would like to again say thank you to AgriScot, SAOS and SOPA, organisations and events who are all sharing tweets and helping to support us. It all helps to get more people listening and sharing, so thank you very much, everybody. Now, though, on with the chat with Rory. We sat down in the Rotary Dairy Parlour at his farm, which is brand spanking new and installed this year. So we're in um, the North Persalic Dairy Parlour. It was commissioned in 2020. It's a 60-point Delaval Rotary. And it's a a specialist grassland version because the kind of dairy farming I do is pastoral mob grazing, much like you'd see in New Zealand, but uh, developed to cope with challenges that the climate of Southwest Scotland throw at us. You you want to know a bit about our business? Please, yeah. 
So our business was formed in 1954 by our grandfather and grown by my father. And now my brother Gregor and I own and run the business. Uh, Gregor has a brand new, or built, built in 2013, uh, pig unit for 200 sows and we finish all the porogeny for bacon through Scotlean, a small marketing co-op of which Gregor's on the board. I look after dairy cows, we've got 1,000 at the moment, we have had as many as 1,500. There are two main income sources, I guess. We uh, also um, have a small Christmas tree enterprise and some cottage rentals. And we sell suckler replacements from the dairy herd and a little bit of what people call bull beef mm -hmm. um, from the dairy herd and lots, of, and lots of calves, occasional dairy replacements. And I have travelled down to Wigtonshire to chat with you today. Um, we've got the right equipment, so we're sitting two metres apart because we're still in COVID restrictions. Obviously, during lockdown, since March, you've not travelled off the farm very much. But before COVID, you were travelling up to Edinburgh quite a lot. Can you tell me a bit about your off-farm activities and what you're involved in with various committees and boards? Yeah, over the years I've done a lot with NFU Scotland. I swore that I never would. My grandfather and father were heavily involved with both what was the milk board and then the union. And I saw the time they put into it and I saw the pressure it created, especially when they're away from the farm. And I swore I would never do it. But um, a guy called Jimmy Mitchell, who was NFU milk committee chairman, persuaded me to come and help and at that time there were some very charismatic people involved like James Withers and I got involved in um, trying to uh, help dairy farmers move away from the very bad situation in terms of milk price and milk price contracts. I then got involved in the, what was called the voluntary, voluntary code of practice and I worked closely with a guy called George Jameson and um, Kenny Campbell at the time who was a cheap milk tutor and we it ended up anyway, I was in the negotiating team to create what was called the Vault of Code of Practice. Eventually I was the farmer's signatory on it. But I learned a huge amount at the time. The key learning was that I, I basically realised that farmers needed to work together, cooperate better. I'd, I had started to work with uh, our milk buyer, Lictalis, on their what they call direct supply committee, myself and chap called Peter Simpson, a great friend, and we very quickly realised how poor a representation of the farmers it was. It was shocking. Really, it was just a puppet organisation for the, so that the company could meet its corporate social responsibility needs. Anyway, um, I, through the work with the union, I realised I needed to change that direct farm committee, make it um, accountable, make it independent, and I get help from SOS. Scottish Agricultural Organisation, in particular a chap called Hamish Walls who has helped me ever since. Mm. And to cut a long story short, we, we formed the committee, as it was at the time, into an association and then a full-blown co-op, producer co-op. So we have what is now called the Milk Supply Association, which I believe is now highly regarded and respected for what it does and it represents all the farmers that supply Lactalis uh, to the factory in Stranraer where our milk goes to make cheese. It's independent of Lictalis, it's financially independent, democratically independent, as a small board of eight of us all together. We have to be voted at the position. So we represent the farmer's voice. 
So th that led me to do more with SOS, and I guess today I try not to go to Edinburgh too often, to tell <laughs> the truth. Covid's helped that, because a lot of it can be done by Zoom. But if I'm going to Edinburgh, it's to see SOS, which I think is a fantastic organisation. Probably quite a quiet organisation that people don't realise just how much good work it does. But between MSA and SOS, that really is what takes up a lot of my time. It struck me, I know you don't necessarily use the word negotiation, but all of these conversations are about listening and you've listened to Lactalis and what they need as a global organisation but more importantly I think is that you and the work you've done with the Milk Suppliers Association is enabling them to listen to you to understand your needs and what you want is that is that vaguely true it's vaguely true yes <laughs> it's vaguely true listening is in um, a more eloquent fashion because that's what we're here for you're the one that's eloquent when it comes <laughs> to this topic not me yeah well i mean i guess you step back one of the other reasons i go to edinburgh spent time in edinburgh is because i also trained as a conflict resolution medi mediator under the careful guidance of core mediation and john sturrock qc who's quite an amazing man really john advertised the course as he does every year i think it's called um, Mediation and negotiations are route to conflict resolution. And I thought, here, yeah, there's something I need to do. I need to do this because I've got to negotiate with this big company, this global giant. Mm -hmm. and I've got to get better at what I do. I've got to be as good as the guy at the other side of the table. Yes, yeah. And I, I went to that, and it was a really, really intensive six days, I think, doing this training. It cost me a lot of money. It was quite an expensive course, six grand, but it was the best value I've ever had. It was the most possibly the most influential continuous professional development, if you want to call it that, I've ever done. I learned how poor I was at listening mm. and how poor most people are at listening. Yes, yes. When you're at, a t you're at a committee or whatever, a meeting, how many people are actually listening? They're sitting at the table thinking about their next answer, not mm -hmm. listening, butting in, coming with their opinion. John's classic is that you get two ears in one mouth, use them in that order. They retaught us how to listen, they taught us how to question, how to understand the body language, to question and understand people without actually speaking, mm -hmm. to build rapport, to organise a room so everybody's comfortable. So I came out the other side of that, not as mega negotiator to be able to beat down Lictalis, but with a better ability to listen to them to ask questions and to try and find different ways, different solutions. That's a great thing John and his team taught is that there are always other solutions. Mm. It's never ever the best outcome you get. Hopefully it's not the worst, but it's probably the realistic outcome that you're seeking. So when we're dealing with Lactalis, who are a global giant, hugely powerful in our supply chain, as as many of the milk processors, the farmers are in a poor position in terms of balance of supply, often because there isn't simply enough milk. Supply and demand is often in favour of the, of the, of the processor. So it's a, it's a buyer's market, and it certainly is at the moment. So we have to find alternative solutions. It's not always about having the best milk price. It's not the best ever interest of our farmers to walk away from the table. But we do have to hold companies, and it's a huge, huge problem in our world today. Yes. Capitalism yeah. of the 
of the shareholder type is a big problem because very little regard is given to the stakeholders in the supply chain. I see it as my job to try and get the best deal for the stakeholder, the farmer. And like Dallas often don't want to get, they are not alone, I am not deriding like Dallas as a big body. They just are selfish, big capitalist companies. And that's a fact of life. And obviously the milk sector is not unique. You presumably have had similar conversations with arable farmers, with farmers who've perhaps got tenancy issues to, to discuss. This imbalance of power is, is the same across every sector of, of agriculture. And how, how do you think the skills that you've learned, if learned by many others within agriculture, could help every sector? Yes, everything I have learned and everything we do in the Milk Supply Association could be copied for other sectors. So often people are completely blinded by what they want, they can't listen, can't think of an alternative, don't want to face their own reality. So much in, a, in every problem is personal. Regardless, the biggest company, the biggest global company there is, it always comes down to the personal behaviour of the person you're dealing with. And nine times out of ten, they can't or don't want to lose face. They don't want to lose face, whether it be in front of their boss, they don't want to lose face because they didn't, they couldn't bring their bonus home to their wife. So once you start to understand the personal aspect, understand the person, then you can start to make inroads to the problem. And of course, there are many people on the other side of the table who are trained to understand that. And so they make it even more challenging for, for me and for others. And, and the tenancy sector, huge, huge issues with landlord-tenancy relationships. That is truly personal for the tenant often. Mm. But similarly with the landlord. And it basically, there isn't enough money in the system for either. So often that creates an impasse. When there are very rich, wealthy landlords, then they need to consider their power and the, how they use their power. Because that's what it's about. It's always about power mm. and how you use it. And if you find somebody at the other side of the table who lacks integrity and is prepared to abuse power for their own selfish gain, it's going to make a solution really difficult to find. Now, how would you advise somebody who's not sitting across the table from somebody enormous, like a huge landowner or Lactalis, but somebody who's struggling with day-to-day -day discussions, whether it be staff members or, or what have you, but on a slightly smaller scale, because it, it, it's something that we all face every day. The, the opposite of the relationship with the big global companies, the relationships we all have at home. And I found myself during that course um, thinking about my relationship with my wife and my kids and how I make a complete and utter arse of it often. <laughs> The truth of it, you can be highly trained as you want, but yet at home, the difficult conversations are still hard to do. And I remember John actually saying, you know, you can be a really good mediator, but you still need help to mediate yourself. Yes. And, you know, so it is, again, as I said, personal. And if we start off by listening, trying to remove the passion from, from the discussion, that's often very difficult if you're a passionate person like me. Remove the passion, remove the emotion, 
and walk in another person's shoes. Look down from the balcony upon the scene. If you can imagine that, if you're standing up above watching yourself, imagine yourself watching the discussion. You'd probably be mortified with yourself for a start. Mm, if they recorded good. the discussion you oh, have yes. with your wife, your partner, <laughs> how embarrassing if it played back. Yes. What a twat you were. <laughs> Rachel will be going mad if she's listening to this because she'll she realise how much a difficult person I am. But, you know, at home and, and dealing with your staff, go up on the balcony, look at it, understand from the other person's side, walk in their shoes, try and understand their view, then alter your argument to suit. Maybe you'll find a solution. Maybe you don't like the solution, but that's because you're not able to face the reality. You then have to think about the reality, think about the outcome that you actually want. So I guess no matter how fantastic the John Starrett course was, your learning would have continued apace after you finished that course, when you actually started to apply what you'd learnt into the real world, I guess. Not, not just with the likes of Lactalis, but as you say, you know, at home, negotiating with your, your children about something. So, so I guess it's about the real life stuff where you apply this knowledge that you really start to, to grow. Would that, would that be fair to say? I think so, yes. Uh, I think that absolutely. Um, maybe the thing I've done different or feel differently about is I, I guess I'm a lifelong learner. I didn't do much at school, really. Mum and Dad had a difficult marriage and wasn't education maybe wasn't top of my priority at the time. And I've learned I've learned on since then and, and education is also or exam results are no indication of intelligence really. I do absolutely believe in education and, and schooling and, and my kids I hope will be able to put themselves in a position that they have choice so they can make the decisions in the future with ease. But yeah, so I desire to, keep, to continue to learn. So yeah, you do a course and it gives you a, a buzz, it gives you a, an intensity to your learning. I've also had a lot of coaching over the years and I seek out coaching, one-to-one -one coaching, life coaching, because I'm never good enough at what I do. Every day we move on to another problem and you need more skills. So you just got to keep learning. So I would advocate to um, anybody, you know, you've got a responsibility to yourself to keep learning, to, to challenge yourself. Never be a victim. Get on, sort your problems out, take them with the bull, the bull by the horns and uh, keep learning. I found um, an article about the, that you had had in the Scotsman, I think, which was to do with the Milk Suppliers Association, and, and a quote from it is, which maybe you'll have to tell me when I finished, maybe sums up this conversation. And, and that quote says, I remain firm in my belief that old school aggressive relationships achieve little. The inequalities in the dairy supply chain need to be addressed by developing trust, solving disputes, and building collaboration. Now, you could probably take out the words dairy supply chain from that sentence. It sums up all relationships and particularly in a business sense collaboration trust are probably two critical words are they absolutely yeah they are i mean i i still stand by that statement and it's really difficult to to get genuinely good collaboration 
really difficult at times to have respectful dialogue, respectful conversations. The supply chain has got power imbalances and so until we can start to solve that and that will be driven by the consumer actually taking responsibility for their actions. I mean we could start talking about a whole different subject around the health of our planet and global warming and, there's, and the thing that farmers can do for it and I have a huge huge concern that um, Everybody just wants to blame somebody else and not take their own responsibility for, their, for, for what's happening to our planet at the moment. The loss of biodiversity, the greenhouse gas thing. I really think farmers can become the heroes, mm. not the villains of it. Yes, I agree. But people need to listen to us. Mm -hmm. And those farmers that uh, will need to change, many of them, what they do. We need to apply science and history. But um, ultimately, while we keep cheap food as a driver of our economy, we won't save the planet. It's absolutely yeah, straightforward yeah. as that. We've got 60 harvests left. I recommend anybody watch Kiss the Ground. It's a tremendous film on, on Netflix. Yes, yes. And people should really watch that and, and understand that there are things we can prioritise and carbon capture being one of them, putting the carbon that we've released as humans back into the ground. Farming can help with that really, really very effectively. But how we produce food going forward cannot be about done at least cost. Mm. You cannot be asking farmers to constantly do more for less because that is the capitalist model and the capitalist model that we have today running our world is killing our world. Mm. And I'm not saying, uh, I'm not some kind of mad left-wing socialist. What I'm saying is we need to step away from shareholder capitalism as the driver of our world economy and we need to take some consideration of the stakeholder and the planet being one of those stakeholders. Yeah. And so, it's so difficult to um, deliver trust and collaboration in a supply chain that's driven by constantly asking us to do it for nothing, less than the cost of production. It's just totally, totally unsustainable in the purest form of the word. And from a consumer perspective then, what do you think needs to change? You need to ask questions and demand. I don't think food needs to be terribly much more expensive, but there are huge inefficiencies in the supply chain, huge waste, and many of these global companies are just taking money away for, for shareholders, mm. vast salaries and vast pro uh, hidden dividends being taken away because there, there's a huge problem with tax regimes in UK and States and Western world where it's very, very possible for Grey accountancy to make a company uh, pay very little tax. Yes, yeah. And, uh, and so the money goes out the top, and the supply chain uses the farmer's land holding to be able to borrow. So they leverage the farmer's capital. The farmer puts himself in more debt and continues. The Dutch, in particular, call it the race to the bottom. You're in the commodity trap. You invest to be more efficient. The efficiency gets taken away from you, but from the processor and the retailer. And you go again until somebody goes bust and then a farmer gets bigger and the farmer gets bigger and the production becomes more industrialised. Meanwhile, the shareholders are taking their dividends and the money's going out the top. So the consumer needs to understand this. The consumer needs to ask questions about the integrity of the companies they're working with or buying from. 
and then they need to really start to, to genuinely source, know where their food's coming from, how it's made and the production system that's using it. We can't feed the world by going back to sort of low output organic type farming. We need Sorry to use about the noise. Ah, so what is that noise, Rory? It's the compressor. Oh, right. Runs the dairy going off. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, we need to, we really need a mix of science, of organic farming, of conventional farming, to be able to produce food in a way that um, will not only feed people really well, but also save the planet. Food needs to be seen as medicine. Mm. We have huge problems with diabetes, with obesity. We need to face that and not just go to the NHS and get a gastric band. Yeah, yeah. If we could change the diet habits of people, eating habits of people, diabetes, if you put a cost in diabetes, and I can't remember the figures, but if you could half the number of di people with diabetes in the country um, because they ate properly, because their doctor knew about food, food is not on, the, food is not on the, um, it's not taught in uh, medicine. It's not taught at university. No, you're right, and I have a GP friend who is furious about that and trying very much to, to change it. But yeah, you're right, the diet and nutrition is not talk, taught. And the prescription medicine. needs to not be um, medicine as we know it, pharmaceuticals. It needs to be healthy food and exercise. Then when food starts to be seen as medicine and you pay a lot of money for medicine, you'll pay a huge amount to pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies are some of the richest companies in the world. Mm huge lobbying power. Imagine the stuff that you shovel over your throat every single day being the thing you pay the least for. It's absolutely mental. It's upside down. But guess what? Those big global companies taking the shareholding out, lobbying governments to make sure. Because if, if food becomes the cure, then they're not needed to the same extent. No, exactly, exactly. All of the junk gets ditched. Yeah, the yeah. junk food gets ditched. You know what, plant-based food is really taking off at the moment and it's, it is being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's been funded by these huge, it's been funded by huge, uh, huge multinational global companies, whether they're pharmaceutical, whether they're current um, food processing companies. Not because it's better for the planet, because there's vast margin in plant-based food. The plant-based milk they call it, it shouldn't be called, it, be called milk, as no. Jack, White, Jack Whitehall said, it's nut juice. <laughs> People are drinking nut juice. Yeah. Nut juice yeah. is water and squashed nuts yes. with something horrible put in it to make it taste mm. edible. This is, comes back to the consumer again, doesn't it? Which of the consumers actually give thought to the amount of water, for example, that's needed to grow almonds for the almond? God. Forests being chopped down for your palm oil that goes into all of these vegetarian products. It's, it's Staggering. Go to California and drive across the Central Valley and see the almond fields. You can drive for hundreds of miles. They are sucking water out of that water basin that relies on snow melt that someday won't come because of global warming. And uh, yeah, you'll understand what almond milk and, and soya milk actually is. In Scotland, we can make human edible protein and fat, which is milk from green grass that grows with water that falls from the sky and grass that humans can't eat. Yet we insist if, if we're in fashion, in vogue and saving the planet, we drink soya milk. It's absolutely mental. So 
in bite-sized chunks, this is not an easy question, Roy, so I'm not expecting a simple answer. In bite-sized chunks, what can we do? What can we all do? What can I do? I'm a consumer, I work in PR, you're a farmer, you're on various boards, people listening to this will, many of them will be rural inhabitants, many of them will be farmers. We've all got to take responsibility, but no single one of us can change the world. Collectively what, what can we can. We First of all, we need to look at our actions, stand back in a balcony and see what will really make an impact. Eating plant-based food will not nearly have the same impact as you um, changing your transportation habits, as making sure your house is insulated, as not getting on that aeroplane, as cycling to work, as not burdening society with your ill health because you've eaten the wrong food. You can decide to look at the food that you buy and make sure it's local, make sure you're buying ingredients. Don't buy fast food, don't buy processed food. Learn to cook. Learn to cook with ingredients. Somebody will come back and say, oh, we can't afford it, it's so expensive, there's too much poverty. You're a wealthy farmer, Rory. There is nothing cheaper than vegetables. There is nothing cheaper than a potato. So, yeah, eat plants, eat potatoes and good green vegetables. Eat a small amount of meat if you can afford it. Eat 80% vegetable, 20% meat. Eat a balanced diet. One that we maybe ate 50 years ago, not today. Everybody eats fillet steak now on a Saturday night. It used to be eaten. Do they? On, <laughs> well, many do, certainly in the farming circles. Yes, yeah, I'd like eat it to once occasionally. People used to you know, you didn't eat fillet steak. It was too expensive. Mm. You ate it at Christmas time. Yeah. But, you know, if you're going to eat it, know where you've bought it. Know that the farmer's done his job right. And make sure, for goodness sake, it's Scottish first, British after that. Yeah, totally agree. Now, we're not here to lecture other farmers, far from it. But what needs to be done within the wider Scottish agricultural industry then to try and address this? Well, that's a big question, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> it is. First of all, got to stop thinking that somebody's going to provide us with an income. I suppose if I'm being controversial, we've got feather bedded. Not feather, feather bedded is the wrong word. We're used to having subsidy as part of our income. Farmers are very, very adaptable. Incredibly tough bunch who can survive challenge after challenge. They become very good very quickly at reading the signals and adjusting their behaviour accordingly. So when subsidy came along, that's exactly what they did. They said, this is the best way to make money for my family, because ultimately that's what they are. They are family people looking after their family. Mm -hmm. This is the best way to make money for my family, so that is what I will do. The signals are going to change, are changing, and have been for a while now. It's relatively speaking, the amount of subsidy relative to the income that they generate by selling things is dropping. The big problem is that the value of the things they're selling is also dropping. So they're just getting less and less income. Government's got no money. Tells you otherwise, they would definitely not be being truthful with you. Mm. There's going to be a new cap, post-cap system of support come out. There won't be any money for it in reality, I'll tell you that now. They'll look at all sorts of things around the environment, but it'll be a tiny top-up. Yeah. And it won't provide enough for your family. So it's coming down the track. Great change. And Scotland has been trying to put off and put off and gets caught up in the detail of less favoured area and region one and region two and the hills and rural depopulation. 
if the farmers came together and said, we're not going to rely upon government to sort it, we're going to sort it ourselves, faced the reality, looked at the options and made some decisions sooner rather than later. It's a terrible thing when people only make decisions because of fear. Mm. Fear is that yeah. we all need an incentive to make, a, mm. to make a change. And so often it's fear. We'll just keep doing it until the change is forced upon us, by which time it's too late. And then it's also somebody else's fault. Mm. As a big bad processor. It is these global giants, yeah. As a combined force, farmers have a huge sway but because they continually work as individual businesses, measuring themselves against the success of their neighbour, <laughs> not aspiring for more other than to be better than their neighbour, then yeah. they're not a hope in hell. Haven't they got a chance? Aspire for more, people. Mm. Aspire for better than what your neighbour's doing. And stop criticising those that try. Start really valuing success. Start backing the people who are really being successful instead of criticising them. People who create change and do things differently, oh, it'll no work, it'll no work. Because they can't possibly have them work. Because if it works for them, it means that they're doing the wrong thing. Yes, or they might have to change. They might have yeah. to change. You have, have to take responsibility. And my brother and I have put in huge change in this business and it might finish us off eventually. We've <laughs> taken on huge debt and we continually try to be better at what we do, we work exceptionally hard. It's hugely challenging some days, but at least we've taken a bull by the horns and are getting on with it. Mm. We've got to save our families' businesses and to save our planet. Farmers have huge responsibility. It's going to be placed upon us regardless of whether we want it or not. So yeah, I think we need to take a stand back and have a look at what we're doing. Mm. Well, thank you, Rory. Okay, that's great. great. Thank, Thank you. you. Wigtonshire Dairy Farmer and SAOS and Milk Suppliers Association board member, Rory Christie. Thank you to Rory for a very wide-ranging chat and giving us plenty to think about. And thank you for listening. Please tweet us with the handle at on underscore farm UK. You can find us with that same handle on Instagram as well to give us your thoughts about what you've been hearing and to share the episode with somebody who you might enjoy it. If you tweet us, we'll try and say thank you on air. It's the least we can do. Next time, we're talking some more about efforts to mitigate climate change, but this time with SAOS, Scotland's umbrella body for farming cooperatives. So we'll see you then.